0: You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Storey and Jacob Morrison.
1: The time has come for America to hear the truth.
2: We are going to stand with them, and not only are we going to fight for their rights, but we're going to stand up for our rights here in our state, in our homes, and in our community. One
3: day longer, one day stronger. One day longer, one day stronger.
2: Because the future of labor rights in the United States of America is not going to be decided in the courts, it's not going to be decided in Congress, it's not going to be decided on talk radio, and it's sure it's not going to be decided on Fox News.
0: Solidarity Solidarity
4: Jacob Morrison, here with my co host and fellow agitator David Story. It is Saturday, December 5th, 2020, and we are broadcasting live to tape online and on the radio on WVNN in the Huntsville, Decatur, Athens listening area from Athens, Alabama. The recording of this program will play tomorrow, Sunday, December 6th, 2020, on the great WGOL in Russellville, Alabama. Today, We have a very special show for you about the situation as it stands in Bolivia. I'll explain further in a short while. Here at the top though, I'll apologize for my voice. I've caught cold and unfortunately, I couldn't put off recording this intro any longer. Um, I did get tested and thankfully it was not COVID, uh, but I've still got a bit of a sick voice. So anyway, thanks for tuning in, folks. We appreciate your time. If you want to see what we're up to throughout the week, get our snide quips about the news of the day, then you should follow us on social media. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash Valley Labor Report. We're on Twitter at Labor Reporters. I'm on Twitter at Jacob M underscore A L. David is on Twitter at Radical Unionist, that's spelled R-A-D-I-C-L, Unionist. And if you miss part of the show and you want to go back and watch it later, search YouTube for The Valley Labor Report and subscribe to our channel. You can go back and watch the full show there, and we also clip segments and release them throughout the week. We also upload the program on more than 11 different podcasting apps. So to see if we are on your listening platform of choice, go to the thevalleylaborreport.transistor.fm slash subscribe. We do now have a website where you can find all of the previously mentioned stuff, thevalleylaborreport.org. And finally, if you appreciate our work and want to help us stay on the air, consider throwing us a couple dollars a month on patreon.com slash thevalleylaborreport. So, about that special episode. uh, There's been a lot happening in Bolivia over the past year or so. There was an election last year, and the clear democratic winner was forced out by the military, leading to an unpopular, fascistic, minor member of parliament being chosen by other international forces to ascend to the presidency. This was a coup. Under the coup government, there were a myriad of human rights abuses, massacres, persecution of political opponents, and more. Fortunately for the people of Bolivia, there were brave women and men on the ground uh, in social movements and the labor movement who were still willing to stand up to this repressive regime and were able to force elections and vote out the coup government overwhelmingly by about 20 points. The story of Bolivia is a story of the power of ordinary working people, and that's why we felt it so important to tell. It's important to connect the struggles of working people across borders because we have fundamentally far more in common with the working Bolivian, Guatemalan, Nigerian, Chinese, you name it, than we will ever have with the oligarchs in our own country. And we can learn from the working people, Uh, we can learn from the struggles of working people across borders. We can learn from their wins and we can learn from their losses. The story of Bolivia, hell, this current chapter isn't finished yet. Of course, the story of a people never is, but it looks hopeful for the first time in more than a year. To help tell this story, We found and interviewed six people, six experts on on, uh, uh, Bolivia. The rest of the show will be our conversations with those folks. Each conversation was approximately an hour long, and we had to cut each conversation down to less than 10 minutes. Uh, As you can imagine, a lot was left out. Each conversation will be made available online, however, Uh, And our patrons will get access to the interviews two to three weeks earlier than everyone else. So what we're going to do is a new conversation will be made available to patrons each day next week, beginning on Sunday with our conversation with Linda Farthing and ending on Friday. So if you want to hear these conversations early, if you want to hear these full conversations this week, then sign up and become a patron. Patreon.com slash TheValleyLaborReport. Now, of course, we never want money to be an object when it comes to one's ability to hear our content. uh, We're we're doing this show to educate people, not to make a buck. So, of course, each conversation will be made available on our YouTube page for everyone to see. It'll just be two to three weeks later uh, after it's released for patrons. You know, we want to reward patrons for their... Uh, for their support. It means a lot and they really do help keep the show on the air. Uh, But you know it's unfortunate that here in the United States we really honestly have uh, just no idea about what is going on in the rest of the world very often uh, even when there are extremely important events happening and even when our own government has a hand in it. You know if we had more time I would personally like to do more education on foreign affairs for y'all, for the audience, but also for myself. I'm very uneducated on on these issues and it's very important to be educated on these issues. But unfortunately, we only have an hour and a half every Saturday. Uh, So this is gonna be our first foray into this kind of thing. We may not get to do it often, but I hope you will enjoy and learn something from it. I know that I did. Our first conversation was with Linda Farthing. She is a writer, an author, and a reporter who has been doing work in Bolivia for years. She even has three books on the country. We wanted to talk to her for a broader historical context for what's happened last year in Bolivia. You know, a lot of us couldn't even place this country on a map, so I felt like it was important to get a better understanding of the country uh, uh, before diving right in. We talked about everything from geography to the Spanish conquistadors, to the democratic revolution, to the movement towards socialism and more with Linda Farthing. We really appreciated her taking the time to talk with us. Here is that conversation.
3: So my name is Linda Farthing. I'm a writer and a journalist, although I have done many other things in my life. Um, I have been involved in working in Bolivia for uh, about 35 years i've written three books i'm now in the process of finishing um, a book about what happened in the last year about the coup um, so and i've spent i've lived there uh off and on over those 35 years but for a total of about 15 years
0: evo morales was elected in 2005 can you tell us a little bit about the pre morales bolivia what was bolivia like
3: Uh, The country was the second after Mexico in having a revolution, you had this indigenous majority, most of whom were living in surf-like conditions, I mean not slavery, but surf-like conditions on large estates controlled by that elite um, population for the most part, light-skinned European heritage uh, population. The revolutionary period went on for about 12 years um, under a great deal of pressure from the United States that initially was most interested in Bolivia's tin reserves. Um, They uh, re-armed the military who subsequently uh, had managed to pull off a coup in 1964 and that coup lasted until 1982. the organized workers, the miners, led by the miners, um, and to at various points, indigenous peoples, organized indigenous peoples, managed to force out the military. And there was a return to democracy in 1982. And the country has been, um, I would say, except for the last year. Uh, it's had some very wobbly transitions from one, one government to another that has been largely democratic. Historically, uh, government belonged only to elites and working class people, the only ways in which they could really influence the outcome of what government would do was to march in the streets. And, um, but then with this process of them becoming mayors and overtaking coming being in charge of municipalities and actually having budgets they started to gain experience in administration and they started to see government i think increasingly as a way as a mechanism that they could actually make change that they had the numbers that if they could make democracy be treated as democracy and avoid having votes bought by whatever political party it was that they could <clears throat> actually um, put take over political power. So by the so they formed a party in the mid 1990s, which is the MAS party, which is Evo Morales's party, and they um, they managed to get a couple of senators um, or several natural sen- senators elected by the late 1990s.
0: The MAS is um, not like political parties here in the U.S., but it's a co—it's a coalition of different social movement organizations like the labor unions and the indigenous movements and uh, uh, things like that. And this is the movement that Ava uh, Morales came out of.
3: Right. I, I mean, I think that people see, saw, certainly saw initially, I, I, I think things have changed considerably now, but at the, at the beginning, they really saw the MAS as a coalition of, um, of social organizations and that the social organizations, the unions, whether they were labor unions or peasant unions, really controlled the MAS and, um, and that it was theirs. I mean, people would say to you in the early days, you know, this is ours. You know, I think that that is one of the lessons that the importance of organizing, the importance of, of political education, of of helping people to understand or working with people to, from their experience to help them understand why it is in their interest to support certain political um, movements, parties, whatever um, in, initiatives. Um, as opposed to to not doing so, the Moss did. You know, they it was a surprise. I mean, they won the election in two thousand and five, and it was a surprise.
0: You know, what were some of the what were some of the things that the Moss ran on in two thousand and five? Like, why were they elected, and then um, you know, to what extent did they fulfill them?
3: So they were they were elected on a on a campaign or a platform of undoing neoliberalism, of uh, making government work for people, particularly for low low income people, and for and reducing poverty. And and they did they did they managed to do all those things effectively. I mean they really were quite effective at, on all those fronts. Um, they introduced a social welfare system that provided. Um, St- small stipends to like pregnant women, uh, children who stayed in school, and the elderly, which were very small, but for very poor people, made a huge amount of difference in terms of being able to feed themselves and um, take care of place. So, um, in in that sense, they were very successful.
0: Right, right, and and the you know that I think is is very important for the the people. Uh, you know the people in those places. Could you kind of quantify the the real material gains to the extent that you that that, that you remember?
3: All right. So when Morales came into power, this I'm reading from the book I'm working on. Uh, he inherited a poverty rate of close to sixty of sixty percent of the popu- of the entire population. Rural poverty would have been much higher, um, somewhere around eighty percent. Right. There it is, which in rural and most indigenous areas rose as high 80% with an inequality index of um, the Gini index of 0.58. I think the United States is about uh, 0.44 in terms of inequality, which is the highest in uh, of any of the industrial country, industrialized countries. The minimum wage, I think, um, quadrupled in the 14 years that Morales was in power. Um, so, those kinds of measures meant that they, of course, the economy was growing. So, in fact, the people at the top actually did very well. They, they did not, it wasn't like their taxes increased. It wasn't like it was a pie and the pie was redistributed. What happened was the pie got bigger. And... But that a lot of the benefits of the pie getting bigger were directed to the lowest part of the society, the poorest people in the society. So extreme poverty, I've got those figures, in Bolivia dropped from approximately 36% to 17%. And overall poverty, and when we say extreme poverty, we're talking about people who are living, I, I can't, I think it's a dollar a day is extreme poverty in that in that context and overall poverty dropped from 48% to 23%. So you can see that the poverty dropped by half. I mean, that's not to say there's still some poverty and there still is an extreme poverty in Bolivia, but it really dropped substantially. And a large number of people actually started to move economically into the middle class and have more middle-class aspirations. It was substantial and it was something that happened throughout Latin America, throughout all of those countries.
0: Linda, thanks so much for talking to us. I I really appreciate your time. I know we went a little bit over, but I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I think it'll be really informative.
3: Thanks a lot, good to talk to you, Jake. Ciao, bye. All
0: right,
4: bye. Good morning, folks, and welcome back to today's special edition of the Valley Labor Report, the Bolivia episode. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co host, David Story. This whole show, you'll be listening to pre recorded interviews that David and I did with subject matter experts on different aspects of Bolivia. You just finished listening to parts of our interview with Linda Farthing which gave a broader historical context for the Bolivian situation today. If you found it interesting and you want to listen to the rest of the hour-long conversation, then become a patron. Her interview will be published exclusively for patrons on patreon.com slash thevalleylaborreport. It'll also be released in full for everyone else in approximately two to three weeks. Next up, you'll hear our conversation with Angus McNelly about the relationship that labor and social movements had with the MAS government from 2005 to 2019. As was mentioned previously, MAS, M-A-S, stands for Movimiento al Socialismo, or the movement towards socialism. It was a party that was created through a coalition of unions, indigenous groups, and social movements Uh, And so, you know, the relationship that these movements as independent entities had to the MAS as it held power in Bolivia with Evo Morales as president is something that is important to understand.
0: We are talking to Angus McNelly. He is an honorary research fellow, uh, editor at Alternatus. Uh, and a professor at the School of Politics and International Relations at Queen Mary University of London. Uh, Angus, thanks for talking to us. I appreciate your time.
5: Thank you for having me on. So I think the, the first thing to say about Bolivia is it's a really heterogeneous, diverse country, and it historically has a really weak state. So civil society has been a really, really important part of the direction historically that the country's taken particularly after the 1952 revolution, where you saw a coalition of working class groups, indigenous groups, and the middle classes overthrow the government and set up a, what was called the national revolutionary government. Um, And there were two poles to that government. Um, The first was made up of middle-class intellectuals, but importantly, the, the labor movement made up the second pole of this, they call it the national revolutionary state, which went from 1952 until the implementation of neoliberalism in 1985. So Bolivia is a country where tin mining was an important part of their history and they used to read Marx down the lines. And they were super radical, um, were able even during the military dictatorships of the sixties and seventies to kind of play an important part politically and were an important, kind of played a salient role in the struggles against um, the implementation of neoliberalism. So the, Labour was widely defeated across Latin America in the 1980s, but in Bolivia this was particularly the case, and the central Obrero Boliviana, which is the Labour central, um, suffered huge defeats um, in the 1980s, particularly in Calamarca, um, where there was that kind of last hurrah, um, which was around the same time that the British miners were defeated. However, they were displaced um, by an important rising indigenous movement, um, and this originally wasn't an identity politics-driven movement. It was a class-based, came out of a kind of radicalization of the peasant movement and was based in kind of syndicalist traditions. So the, um, the Sisutsube, which is the Peasants' Union, was joined to the Central Labour of Oluviana, the, the COP. Um, and the most radical part of this peasant movement from the 1980s onwards was the coca growers. The Coqueleros. Because when people left the mines, um, as they were privatized and closed down um, after 1985, people had nowhere to go, there was no way to make money, and so people left the mines and went to the Chapari, which is where they grew up. So they brought this radical kind of like Trotskyist tradition, and then used it to organize these peasant movements. Um, so the Coqueleros became the kind of radical heart of the peasant movement, and in the 1990s, there was this debate that was like, should we try and build a state within a state, So like the Zapatistas in Mexico, or should we t- build a political instrument and try and state, take state power? And they opted for the latter and the movement towards socialism on the mass comes is the party that they formed. And so Morales kind of rode to power off the back of this social movement, radicalism, and found himself once in power at the head of a country which was already mobilized Um, and so in that sense like yes he came to power in a strong position but the period before him this five-year period of so-called social movement activism really shaped kind of politically where he could go in the first couple of years of his tenure so they spent the first term taking the radical demands of social movements and trying to implement them but implementing them through a liberal state and in a way that would keep their radical appearance without actually shaking anything up. So you had the nationalisation of gas that did renegotiate contracts, which meant that the government was able to gain a larger slice of hydrocarbons rents. But in terms of ownership, Petrobras and Repsol kept most of their um, gas fields. They actually increased their share of hydrocarbons production in Bolivia. This is not a nationalization on anyone's book, but it looks like one. Same, similarly with the Constituent Assembly, the way that the Constituent Assembly was organized um, as firstly um, with a liberal elections for all of the representatives who had to participate as a member of the party, um, a two-thirds voting um, needed for all of the proposals. All of this was set up in order to take kind of different forms of political organization and more radical ideas and put them through this liberal machine meant it came out the other end with a kind of um, a a compromised um, outcome shall we say. I I think it's important to to stress that like, I don't think Morales implemented those games half-heartedly. I think more it was kind of a technocratic implementation of demands. Um, that, as you said, did have real material gains. I mean, renegotiating the hydrocarbons contract did mean that the state all of a sudden had more money than it's ever had in its history in order to spend on infrastructure projects. Um, so high, there are now highways between all the major cities, electrification improved, um, water and gas provision in, in the cities improved. Um, you saw rising kind of minimum wage, um, which is really important for particularly formalized working classes, which increased kind of, yeah, from about 500 Bolivianos a month, which is about just $150 a month to over 2000, which is a fourfold increase over 10 years. And what that had, it had a knock-on effect on um, wages in the informal sector because um, aggregate demand went up. And so the amount of money flowing through the economy. Um, so what hydrocarbons rent did was basically um, kind of heat up the uh, effective demand and mean that people working in formal services and commerce all of a sudden have more customers and so made more money, better access to credit. So on, if we're talking about kind of like a, on along capitalist lines, things did really improve. Um, the problem was is that it, it wasn't the radical project that people hoped it would be. And it wasn't the radical project that movements asked for. So thank you both for, for having me. Um, and best of luck with your organizing. Yeah, thank you.
4: Welcome back, folks. You are listening to a special episode of the Valley Labor Report on Bolivia. My name is Jacob Morrison, and my co-host is David Storey. You just finished listening to portions of an interview with Angus McNally on the relationship of labor and social movements to the mass government of President Evo Morales. Next, we talk to Ali Vargas, about the coup that took place in Bolivia against the democratically elected President Evo Morales in 2019.
0: So uh, we have with us right now, uh, Ali Vargas. He is a reporter in Bolivia with Kalsuchen News. Uh, Ali, can you, uh, how long have you been reporting in Bolivia?
6: Well, I came just after the coup took place in November last year, right, I think early December. When Evo Morales' party, the movement towards socialism, was beginning to regroup, um, sort of reorientate itself after the quite traumatic events that took place in November last year. And I've been uh, following that, that process since, since then, really, and it's a process that's still ongoing now.
0: We were interested in talking to you specifically about the events leading up to last year's election, the uh, fraud allegations, and the removal of Morales from power. Can you uh, talk to us about that?
6: Well, Evan Morales has won every presidential election that he stood in since 2005. Uh, so he'd won already three presidential elections. His last victory was in 2014, where he won with over 60% of the vote. And he was standing for the fourth re-election in um, October of last year. Now, the minority of the country that always opposed the mass had grown increasingly increasingly desperate. And they saw no sort of exit from what was uh, very clear was very clearly going to be a victory for the mass. So before the elections, we begin to see a number of mobilizations, number of allegations um, that his candidacy is illegitimate and that there'll be fraud in the elections before any uh, vote had been cast. The elections come and Morales wins with just over 10%. And in Bolivia's electoral law, you can win in the first round if you have more than 10% than uh, the second place. So Evo yeah, well, didn't manage to reach 50%, he got 47%, um, but it was 10 points above second place, uh, then sort of neoliberal centrist candidate Carlos Mesa. So what we see then is Carlos Mesa um, calls his supporters out. He makes uh, these allegations of electoral fraud very similar to what uh, Donald Trump has been talking about in the past uh, week or so. So allegations without much basis, but calling his supporters out to the streets while vote counting was still going on. And what did his supporters do the night after the election? They went out and they burnt down vote counting centers held violent protests in the cities of Potosi, uh, Sucre and also believe. So in three main cities, these protests turn violent. They burn down and centres. That's something that presents a problem for you know doing a proper audit of the elections because even during this sort of melee, um, ballot papers end up getting burned, end up getting destroyed by these sort of violent right wing groups, and then we just see the situation get worse and worse. The violence uh, escalates dramatically from the right in opposition. Figures from the US, such as Marco Rubio, sort of make, uh, start tweeting that electoral fraud is taking place. Again, this is while vote counting is still ongoing. And they don't uh, provide any evidence for these allegations. They make these uh, sort of communications that further inflame the situation in Bolivia. And then what we see is these right-wing protests, these anti-Evil Morales protests, uh, turn increasingly violent. So I think all of that came to a head in in October last year.
0: And I wanted to underscore a couple other important points like it wasn't just u s politicians that that were uh, making these unfounded allegations of voter fraud this it was the Organization of American States sent out letters the New York Times uh, uh, you know echoed these allegations and since then all, the Organization for American States the oAS the New York Times they have all admitted that the allegations of voter fraud were unfounded, that they, these were not, that, that there was no documented evidence of any, any fraud by uh, the MAS, and, um, and, and what ultimately ended up happening is that the military sent a letter to uh, President Morales um, recommending <laughs> that, that he leave office, right? And so look, pick us up there. The country falls apart in a number of ways.
6: Um, I think in the United States, and, uh, you know, Europe. There's a certain discourse that you know socialism in Latin America has caused like total breakdown of society, and we mustn't follow that path. In fact, what happened in Bolivia was the reverse. Is that 14 years of Evo Morales' government had provided Bolivia with the longest period of economic growth and social stability. The moment Evo Morales left office, all of that broke down. Once the sort of pro United States candidates came into power so what we first saw was a uh, huge political repression, there was two massacres of Pereira Morales protesters in the first 10 days after the coup, um, but following that there was also an incredibly serious economic crisis, an economic recession before the coronavirus hit we're already seeing rising unemployment and economic slowdown before that hit and then the pandemic hit and what the government's response is is to declare an immediate sort of lockdown total lockdown but without any kind of plan for how to help the majority of the population who works in the informal economy and who suddenly lost their income when the lockdown was declared so people were locked away and they uh, You know, there was no such thing as furlough pay or subsidy checks. People were left to start with huge numbers. And during that period, we saw unemployment triple. because what happens when people suddenly lose their incomes and have nothing to replace it? Consumer demand collapses. What happens after that, small businesses across the board collapse. They no longer have customers. And since then, unemployment has more than tripled. And there's now a total economic crisis. The economy contracted 11% in that time. So the whole neoliberal approach, free market approach that was immediately implemented after Evo Morales was forced out of power, that triggered a very serious economic crisis. And that's part of the reason that the mass was able to win later on, because for 14 years under Evo Morales's government, the argument from the left was always that. If the right take over, if the neoliberals take over, then, you know, you're going to be hungry, there's going to be total disarray, and I think that argument worked for a long time. But after 14 years, it's a long time, it's more than a decade, people began to think, well, maybe they're just trying to scare us, maybe this is just, you know, fear-mongering. But now, what people realise is that, you know, after just a few short months of having these right-wing politicians in power, uh society collapsed in an, in an incredible way and, and i think that was uh, that's something that fed the victory of the left just a few weeks ago
0: one of the things that you mentioned kind of in passing but i didn't want to let go um unemphasized is that these right-wing economic policies that was destroying the economy before the pandemic
6: Yeah, absolutely. And Luis Aso is now the president. He's an economist and he was warning about this, uh, what was going on months before the pandemic. I had the opportunity to interview him. And he talked about the fact that in Bolivia, what has been the most successful model has been state-led development in, uh, because for big projects, big development projects that are required in countries like Bolivia, um, projects like sort of developing industrial capacity, manufacturing these are things that are very very long term so the free market uh, doesn't see a great deal of, of importance in them because they don't bring short term profits but they do have very large short term costs mm. uh, so the state is the only sort of motor that can sort of look long term and then put the money down and uh, the decimation of the state industries was incredibly damaging for Bolivia to be able to be going into the pandemic with that going on. You know of course everywhere in the world had an economic crisis is experiencing still an economic crisis because of the pandemic but I think there's ways to approach it. The way that the ANEAS regime approached the pandemic was just to lock people away without any plan for how to support anyone. You know, and all these small businesses have completely collapsed across the board. People have lost their incomes, and that caused an even deeper economic crisis than there could have been. And the reason they posed a total lockdown so quickly was not because of the pandemic. Well, they did it for political reasons. Bolivia was about to go into an election. There were a huge amount of protests at the time, and they saw it. They took a political advantage of coronavirus to, uh, you know, End any kind of dissent, sort of lock people at home, stop people protesting. So they're very, very eager. They were too eager to put um, a total lockdown when there should have been really a partial lockdown in which some sectors of the economy could have continued working to stop a total, total crisis.
0: So the uh, the election of uh, President Luis Arce happened a few weeks ago now, and he is he's been sworn in, and
6: he's comes to the basic problem that the right in Bolivia doesn't understand the character of the country because they don't want to. They're, they're sort of repulsed by this culture, so they refuse to learn about it, and therefore they refuse. Therefore, they shoot themselves in the foot by the fact that they, you know, the end result is that they don't understand the country, and then therefore they can't win elections if they don't understand the country. So the, the Bolivian right is, is incredibly short-sighted. Uh, despite the fact they you know they'll show off about having studied at university, they have an incredibly narrow sort of worldview that um, stops them from understanding the real- realities of the majority of people in the country. I think mean, that's that's that's, um, that's very important for mass to be able to win with
0: such a world, you know, with such a margin. Ali, thanks so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Thank you guys.
4: listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison and my co-host is David Story. Folks, we are trucking right along with our special episode on Bolivia. We just finished listening to portions of our conversation with Ali Vargas about the coup. Next up, we talked to an international human rights attorney about the human rights situation under the coup government. I'll take the opportunity here again to mention that these are only about 10-minute portions of hour-long conversations. So unfortunately, a lot of very interesting stuff does get left out. Uh, So if you want to be able to listen to the rest of these conversations this week, then support our work on patreon.com slash thevalleylaborreport. Otherwise, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and you'll be able to hear the full conversations about two to three weeks from now. Without further ado, Thomas Becker, International Human Rights Attorney.
2: My name is Thomas Becker. I'm an international human rights lawyer with uh, University Network for Human Rights. I've spent um, most of the last 15 years living here in Bolivia working on human rights issues. Um, most of those years working at Harvard Law School's International Human Rights Clinic. Um, and I've worked on a range of issues, You know, worked directly with social movements. Um, I guess the, the main work I've done has been I've worked on a a case against Bolivia's ex-president, Gonzalo Sánchez de Lozada, uh, for his role in massacring protesters and social movement leaders. Um, He's known as kind of El Gringo, the the gringo, uh, spent most of his life living in the United States, part of the oligarchy here in Bolivia. Uh, So we brought a lawsuit against him, uh, the victims, and we actually won the lawsuit a few years ago and, and been back and forth in an appeal, and just won our appeal a couple months ago. Um, it's the first lawsuit against a living ex-president ever in the United States for human rights violations. Um, and I should just kind of plug—you know, really—it was a movement-driven lawsuit from folks on the ground from the Bolivians. Um, but I've also worked on several other—you know—human rights issues here, including document abuses, uh, documenting abuses under Abel Morales, uh, definitely under the most recent um, interim government of Anya's. Uh, as well as even before. So uh, I've worked on human rights here for quite a long time, perhaps too long. Um, but I also work on human rights in other countries I've worked with, for years with the Zapatistas, worked in India and with social movements there. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about me.
0: Everybody at this point knows that um, Morales was kicked out of office. Um, th- there was a coup in Bolivia. And, and then after that, uh, Janine Añez took over. She held the office of the presidency um, for, for about a year, and there was a lot, a lot happened in that year. So, you know, just kind of, you know, what happened?
2: <laughs> so I'll, I'll just start with week one. Her third day in power, and I was actually here, not just here in Bolivia, I was at the site of the massacre. Her government carried out a massacre in the town of Sacaba. A bunch of cocaleros and other campesino farmers were pro- marching into the city, into Cochabamba, and then on to La Paz, which is kind of the administrative capital here, to protest this new government, unelected government. And it wasn't actually necessarily a protest for Abel Morales; it was a protest against the hyper-radical violence against indigenous. I mean, indigenous women were getting beat in the streets. People, motoqueros, motorcycle gangs, were grabbing them and just kind of dragging them along by their hair. And so, and they were burning the indigenous flag, both. Um, kind of these right-wing fascist groups, but also members of the government, and so they were. They set out on this multi-day protest, and outside of Cochabamba, one of the big cities where there are a lot of kind of lighter-skinned folks that didn't want the Indians coming in, the police and military had a, a basically a, a blockade, and uh, they massacred the people. They they said told the women to come to the front told them to lay down their uh, flags and gas masks, and they were gonna let them pass. And when they did that, then they opened fire on them. And it was, as I mentioned earlier, like we have to talk about race in this because as they're shooting, they, they chase down people, they beat them, people ran into homes to hide, and they beat them and yelled anti-Indigenous statements at them. Uh, they shot people, they targeted people who were trying to help others. And so, and there was a military flying overhead uh, with the soldier allegedly shooting at people from above. Uh, At at the end of the day, there was about 120 plus injured and 11 killed officially. But there were certainly more, like I said, I was in the town right after the massacres. I was there, there was blood everywhere. I saw the bullet holes, I saw the crying mothers. I went straight to the hospitals and, and was with the victims. And I spoke with people that were in hiding who had injuries who were like I'm not going to <laughs> I'm not going to go to the hospital they're going to come find us and they're going to disappear me they're going to disappear that dead person's body they're going to register me and come after my family so the numbers are are we don't have accurate numbers but they were certainly higher than the official numbers this is day 3 that same day or perhaps it was the day before sorry anya's passed a decree giving immunity to soldiers that killed others this is a completely illegal decree, but this is, you know, her third day in power. Four days later, same thing in Senkata, which actually, I, you know, as we speak, that's tomorrow. The, the year anniversary is tomorrow on the 19th. Uh, another massacre, 11 killed, dozens injured, and we're just in the first week, you know? and she's carried out two massacres, passed an illegal decree. I couldn't count the number of people that were illegally arrested in that week, people that were um, tortured when they were arrested. I spoke to people who were sexually assaulted when they were arrested, Uh, you know, week one. And to give context, because again, Bolivia, you know, these numbers may not sound, hundreds of injured and a couple dozen killed may not sound like a lot when we have like sensationalized, you know, you you read about Syria and boy, you know, that's what, That happens in like a neighborhood in a day a a lot of times. But in Bolivia, November was the second deadliest month in the history of democratic Bolivia in terms of state forces killing uh, civilians. The first deadliest was the Black October, the one I was talking about with Goni. The second deadliest was this November. This is an interim government whose mandate is to call elections. But what they're doing is gunning down uh, protesters who express, well, their right to protest and who express uh, dissatisfaction with a, a government that came in illegally and perpetuated hyper-racist uh, policies. So I, I conducted it through Harvard's clinic and the and University Network for Human Rights. We conducted a study for, or an investigation for a good seven, eight months. And really I've kind of continued it since, but we published this a few months ago. Talked up hundreds of people, hundreds of witnesses there. And everybody was just blown away. I mean, like I said, they had them lay down their sticks with their flags and their gas masks and, and when they were kind of their most vulnerable is when they attacked and the really upsetting part. And I, I still remember this. I'll, I'll, frankly, I'll remember it forever. I mean, it was some of the most gruesome and I've worked in war zones, but it was, it was really gruesome, the stuff I saw. And I remember being in the hospital and people telling me, and some of them just waking up out of coma or whatever, they just woken up for the first time since they were shot and saying you'll see tomorrow they're going to call us indians they're going to call us terrorists they're going to call us drug traffickers and no one's going to believe us cuz i'm brown and i even with all my context and understanding the racism here i thought there's no way but what happened the next day is all the press it repeated what the government said oh you know no they were the the protesters were the violent ones they shot themselves to m- make us look bad that was the government's line that that, that brothers and sisters turned to each other and killed (laughs) their sisters and brothers to make the government look bad and the Moss party was behind it and these are narco thugs and what they did and we spoke to and actually i've seen footage of it and i spoke to a couple witnesses who said they paraded people they arrested they put weapons into their hand and filmed them uh, just to make them look bad i spoke to the spokesperson of the police there that was in charge of the, the operations there they said they found zero guns on the protesters. But it didn't matter, you know what I mean? The narrative here was not, they shot themselves. In Sankata, they were there to blow up the gas plant to kill all of El Alto, which is even more wild. Most of the protesters in this area, Sencata, are from the zone, there is a gas plant. If they blew it up, they would have killed their entire family and all their neighbors. But that was the dominant narrative. And it really has been the narrative for most of the last year, because those who've tried to say, no, something different happened, were arrested for t- sedition, were arrested for terrorism. The, the TV channels that would talk about this or the, the, the um, different forms of the press, mostly independent press, because the commercial press really got scared into changing their tone. The journalists that spoke out against the government were fired. So most of the mainstream outlets became very pro-government. But independent stations, particularly indigenous stations, were shut down. The government shut down something like 53 in the first month because they were saying, hey, what happened here was a massacre. Or this government is behaving like an authoritarian government. And if you use that sort of language against this government, you were put on a list of seditious people. I allegedly was on a list of seditious people. I mean, I got harassed by the government. I certainly got harassed by parastate groups. I got attacked by parastate groups. You know, just to give a little context, again, I'm suing an ex-president. I have enemies here. I've never experienced the kind of violence that I've seen over the last year I've been, I was attacked just in, you know, a a year ago, in about a month, I was attacked, I think seven times by these kind of groups that allegedly were protesting for democracy against April Morales. But obviously, you know, there's nothing democratic about beating someone for doing human rights work. And, And I only say this because look, all the privilege I have is a white American who teaches at an overrated place like Harvard Law School. You know, I have all the privilege in the world. If they're gonna attack someone like me, you could only imagine how they're gonna treat an indigenous woman or a, a, coca, you know, a campesino farmer without the privilege I have. And, and it's just been a hyper, hyper violent year. Like I said, unprecedented since Bolivia became a democracy. This is something I, I have a friend who is ahead of her, her husband was disappeared during the dictatorships. Uh, she said, I'm more scared under the interim government Añez, than I was during the dictatorships. And that's what it's been like for indigenous people, what it's been like for leftists, what it's been like for a lot of journalists and what it's like for Moss party members. I mean, I, I, we, we're only now starting to kind of grasp how many fled the country. Actually, we, we still don't know. But what I can say is over the, the last few weeks, I mean, I, in the streets, I've met people who've come up and been like, thank you. I just came back to the country finally because I've been in hiding. I was in political exile. Thank you for producing this report because nobody was talking about it. And I was able to do it because I was in the United States at the time. Nobody could kill me. <laughs> you know, no one could come after me. But the number of people that had to go in hiding, particularly those that were associated with Abel Morales's party w- was off the charts. I mean, this we just, I- I've never seen this in my 15 years here. And I've talked to so many people who said, I've never seen this. I hadn't seen this kind of behavior since the dictatorships. And many said, boy, it's even worse. And this has so- been malignant the last year.
0: Comes. Thanks for talking to us. Yeah. I, I've really enjoyed it. Yep.
2: Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks for having an awesome program. I, I
1: appreciate it. I appreciate it.
5: <laughs> Lonely dead, stuck, bleeding, pain. Lonely dead, shot, shoes, today.
4: Welcome back, folks. You are listening to the Valley Labor Report with your hosts, Jacob Morrison and David Story. This is a special episode on Bolivia. All morning, we've been bringing you different interviews with different subject matter experts on different aspects of Bolivia. In the following segment, we talked to two Bolivian unionists about life in the labor movement in Bolivia. First, we speak to Sister Roxana. She is a member of the Coca-Growers Union. And then we speak to Brother Rolando. He is the leader of the Central Obrera Boliviana, or the Bolivian Workers' Center in Santa Cruz, which we can think of as analogous to a local labor council.
0: Uh, Sister Roxana, sorry for the technical Brother difficulties, Jenker. but um, I was, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested, you know... Um, it was Kathy that I was talking to, and she said that you've been a member of the Coca Growers Union for, um, for about 30 years. Can you tell us what it was like um, when you first joined and, and you know, kind of what was happening uh, during that time?
7: Yo. I've been the director of this union since I was very young. I'm 53 years old, and this has been an organization of only women, and they've been doing it for almost 20 years. During this time, there was a lot of machismo. We couldn't organize very well as women because the men took all the power and the women had less power. Afterwards, we as women organized and we took the power. Now we're cultivators of coca. Now we're directed by women. We're on an equal level with men. Before they thought we should be cooking in the house or doing the chores or taking care of the children. But we as women work together with the men growing the coca leaves. We also work in the organization. They take us into account half and half. Before it was different. They didn't take us into account. Now we as women were really organized. Before we as women weren't organized. We were suffering, but we have been able to organize ourselves as women.
0: That's really amazing. What was it like to... um what was it like to kind of fight against some of that uh, um, machismo as, uh, as women in the Coca Growers Union? And, and around what time period are you talking about that, that this transition happened from kind of a male-dominated organization to um, an organization that, uh, that represents women and takes women into account as well?
7: It was 1989 or 1988. At that time, it was only the men participating in the organization. The women were at home, but we had rights and we had a voice, and sometimes the women say our opinions more than the men. We make better decisions than the men. We also give suggestions, and that's why we fought as women to organize and to keep organizing. Now equally, we get positions of power. They said the women should be at home and they should take care of home. And then in the union, they said, when you come, you should be cooking for us. There is a house for the union, and they said the women should be cleaning it. They said only the men should be able to participate. There was a lot of machismo. The women also wanted to express our opinions. They said, what do the women know? But sometimes the women do better than men. It's not to humiliate the men or discriminate
3: are the women making the same per i don't i assume they uh, they are paid per kilo or something like that are they are they equal to the men on the pay as well
7: see see es lo mismo las mujeres el 50% los hombres el 50% yes yes we get paid the same 50% for the women and 50% for the men
0: um. You know, speaking of the the marches and the demonstrations, there's been a lot of um, um, there's been a lot of uh, political upheaval um, in Bolivia recently uh, around the um, you know around the uh, around the coup last year. How has the, um,
7: not only recently since years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago. There were always confrontations. They told us to remove the coca leaves, and then they would give us things in return, small things. It was not enough to cover our economic needs at home. If we can't make ends meet, we suffer more because we have to feed our families. We have to send our children to study. We didn't get enough compensation. They were trying to compensate us only halfway
0: so what uh what was it like being a uh what was it like being a coca grower under the under the Morales government from from 2005 to 2019 you mentioned that um you know i said something about uh recently demonstrations Uh, and marches and you said um you said not only recently so um so you know was there a lot of conflict even under the Morales government
7: It was prior to Morales being president. During the 14 years he was president, we didn't have any conflict. We as women grew more powerful. They showed us we are valued, that we are respected. That was during 10 years of his government. There was no machismo. It was getting easier. But this last year under the new government, it was more difficult. But thank God, and thanks to the fight we fought, we came back to socialism and I think we're going to be fine again. Last year when we had the coup, we were very afraid and we didn't know what to do because they surprised us. We've had many coup d'etats in the past. We have to mobilize, we have to block the roads, but then they kill us and they militarize and we keep fighting. We ask for elections now so we can have a government that has legal elections. That government supposedly was temporary. It was only supposed to stay for three months, but then they stayed for a year.
0: Right. So, um, so wh- how do you feel about the new, um, the new government of uh, President Luis
7: Arce? Now I feel happy. I hope we can have a lot of tranquility. Because that government comes from the humble class, the middle class. And it's a socialist government because we as poor people deserve to be well-treated. We have no money. We eat what we produce. Here for the poor people, for humble people, for the people who live only off of their jobs, we don't have much money and a socialist president helps the people like us. It helps us here in Cochabamba to work. We all have to work to eat. We all have to work because here we have responsibilities. We cannot live off the work of others. And I like that because if not, we would have people taking advantage of the situation or taking advantage of other people's jobs. Everybody has to work because if not, what can I do? What do I have to live on? I need my seeds. I need my elements for the fisheries. We are not afraid of socialism. We do not have guns. It's only the organization. To be together as an organization and work together. That's what I would say in Big Strokes is what socialism is. To live a good life all together.
0: Uh, Good evening, Brother Orlando. I really appreciate you taking your time to talk to us. I know that it's pretty late uh, there in Bolivia. We're talking as it's 9 p.m. on uh, Thursday, November the 19th. Um, So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. It, It really means a lot.
6: Yes,
1: of course. Good evening from Bolivia, specifically from Santa Cruz. I'd like to say hello to all of your listeners, viewers, brothers and sisters from everywhere in the world.
0: So, Brother Orlando, could you um, introduce yourself to the, the people that are going to be listening to, uh, to this interview later? Uh, you know who are you, um, and and what do you do there in Bolivia for the labor movement?
6: Ah, Soy el compañero Rolando Gorda. say compañero Flaco Gorda.
1: Of course, my name is Rolando Gorda. They call me Brother Flaco Gorda here in Santa Cruz. We are the uh, basic soldiers. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to elect a new executive committee. We have about Fifty-six sectors. Many of those from the proletariat class, from the labor class. Those of us uh, who want to want to direct the departmental uh, politics of the region. I am uh, work in the in the petroleum industry. Uh, I'm, I'm in the proletariat, uh, and I work in the operations sector. And I've just uh, finished my third round, and we're starting the third, the, our next round to go to elections for uh, new elected members. And uh, the position that you hold, uh,
0: what, what is the position that you hold um, in, the, uh, uh, in the organization there?
6: La que mi gestión de ser ejecutivo.
1: My position is I am an executive manager, and we're going to go into re-elections called upon, called upon by the petroleum sector to uh, dispute the executive committee of Santa Cruz. I anticipate with complete humility that the Congress that we're at right now is trending about 95% that uh, they will give us the trust again to uh, uh, continue this uh, labor movement through the secretariat right now. That's great. That's great. Um,
0: So how did you um, get involved in the labor movement? How how long have you been involved in the labor movement there in Bolivia and um, and and what made you want to work uh, you know so heavily in, in the labor movement?
6: Well
1: I'm from Camiri. Uh, around that area, uh, around my childhood. It was a small town, mainly mainly a petroleum-based uh, economy, the petroleum capital of the country. There were, you know, two choices. In my youth, when I was very young, I had, I, uh, very young, I lost my mother in a car accident She was very young and i was i had the responsibility of taking care of you know five of my younger children so i was forced to find a job and obviously you know you you see lots of injustices through your childhood and it starts to make you into a dreamer and it it was possible to fight these injustices through uh, through a union. And in Camiri, the uh, strongest union was the petroleum uh, union. And more or less, that was our school. After, after high school, we, we came to Santa Cruz. And well, we've been working for, for the, in this movement for 30 years, uh, working in this, in this sector but also I've uh, been working for about uh, 15 years as an organizer, as a leader, as a, as a delegate, from intermediate, intermediary leader. I've been a sub-secretary of my of my union, the, the largest union in the country, and I've had the opportunity to be the first petroleum worker in the labor movement in Santa Cruz that occupies the executive position of the workers' movement. This had also allowed me to be candidate for the governorship of Santa Cruz, uh, you know, using socialism as my instrument. But obviously, uh, first and foremost, it's my, my union militancy uh, is is uh, primary in my function.
3: How are the workers feeling now with the new government coming into place? And it sounds like your elections for the for the executive committee or the executive council is coming up. Uh, are the workers, the proletariat, on the ground feeling excited about this new era? Uh, Liliana, i de entrar
6: a uh,
1: a well let me see before before i can respond to the question i also can say that last year during the october elections before the coup i was also candidate to second senator for the department of santa cruz we were elected as second senator uh, with the help of my uh, worker brothers and sisters and obviously the president at that moment said that uh, he said that I wasn't just a candidate of Santa Cruz I said I was a candidate for the whole country that was represented the, the workers because of the coup we could not uh, assume the senate position It was we were very persecuted uh, I think I was the, uh, the most persecuted head at Santa Cruz. We had to hide in the woods for about 27 days until uh, this, uh, this climate and this pressure could pass and uh, you know threats to my life, you know, to, to protect my life so it's been a difficult time uh, last year we have to remember as well there was no fraud it was a coup uh, it was uh, sponsored by the oea and by mr armado and, and fascism you know because in santa cruz you have to know that the powerful people always want to impose their will and obviously the workers, the proletariat class to social organizations they always look uh, they always look down upon us so it's a pretty complicated department the transnationals they had a uh, same kind of coup of last year to steal Uh, our natural resources, specifically our lithium. I think that's what's provoked the coup, but uh, thankfully uh, the consciousness, the consciousness of the people uh, have imposed themselves through the vote. We're not uh, the culture of fighting or whatnot, we're the culture of the vote. We are brothers and sisters that historically, you know, workers, proletariats, our brothers and sisters, our indigenous brothers and sisters have given their lives, have given their blood, and with their support we've recovered democracy. So also with the, you know, today um, had the opportunity because of the 18th of October, the, the consciousness of the people through a general indefinite strike uh, decreed by the by the central labor force, our, our young people, our indigenous people, our workers, we were able to recover our democracy with, with more than 55% in favor. So the workers and the Bolivian people in particular, uh, the, the proletariat class, we, we are sure that with with President Lucho Arce and, and uh, David Chaguanca, we are going to recover the economy the workers we know that we have to work our base so that the economy will recover uh, with the, the leadership of of, of a brother Lucharse, without forgetting our, our legitimate demands are to reinvindicate our workers that have been very vulnerable and with the you know uh, the, the memory that every 15 minutes there was a worker on the streets or, or you know people were thrown out of the streets and that's what happened during the transitional coup government happened and now the government that emerges from the people from the working class we have the commitment to recover the economy to consolidate the future of our children in our new generations that's powerful.
4: Welcome back, folks. This is the Valley Labor Report. Your co hosts today and every Saturday morning are myself, Jacob Morrison, and David Story. This is the final segment. Of our special episode on Bolivia. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. I know that I have. I believe that David has. And if you like this kind of thing, you know, let us know. You can tweet us at Labor Reporters or Facebook us at The Valley Labor Report. If it gets a really good reception, then maybe we do it more often. Um, and I'll take this opportunity to give one final reminder that all of these interviews are only snippets. And uh, there's a lot of good stuff that just simply couldn't make it into the radio cut. If you want to hear all of the full interviews this week, then support us on patreon.com slash thevalleylaborreport. And no worries, you know, if you can't support us financially, totally understand, not a big deal. Just make sure that you're subscribed to our YouTube channel so that you can see when all of the interviews are made public for everybody. So we're going to end today's show with a message from Ollie's interview on lessons to learn from Bolivia's labor and social movements on enacting change that benefits ordinary working people.
6: There are so many lessons I think that Bolivia can, can take to the world, but I think the mass as a political movement has always been built on the, on the formula of combining social struggle you know labor struggle with the electoral struggle with electoral participation um but one had to come before the other you can't say you can't just say oh will marry both together if you don't have a labor movement if you don't have social struggle there was 30 years of social struggle without real political representation before that stroke that social struggle was strong mm-hmm. enough to be able to um, articulate itself politically and build a political instrument. And I think when it's just you know when the time comes when the social movement, social struggle is strong enough to be able to impose itself in politics, it shouldn't settle for, you know, supporting a party that will speak on its behalf, that will you know promise to represent it in in Congress or in in power should be an instrument that is built out of the social movements itself as an instrument, as a way for labour struggle, social struggle, to insert itself in politics on its own terms, to govern itself rather than waiting for others to, to to represent it. I think that's that's how the mass is governed. That's why it has the trust of people because people don't see, you know, mass officials coming down from on high asking, oh, you know, if you vote for us, we'll, you know, we'll represent you. No, people understand that it's, that it's our it's my party it's our party you know through my participation in my unions and things I am the party so I think that's that organic link with people is 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 the only reason that you know the mass has been around for now nearly two decades every election they change parties they change the name of their parties they're always called something very generic like or together, or you know, the Civic Party, or the I don't know, uh, we believe things like this. Things that don't mean anything because they're just like shell companies, essentially, for different you know interests and different uh, plutonists. The mass is the only party that stood in every election for the past uh, for the past twenty years because it has a root amongst all the people. I have support supporting.
4: Let's go!
1: Built upon a foundation of lies, boarded up structures and disused factories. Dead streets are headed by